Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode number eight. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's have a chat. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about rapid learning. Over the next few episodes, we want to have a series of conversations about the different phases of learning and some methods for getting the most out of your training. If you're like me, where your training time is limited, you have to really maximize what you get out of every single session, especially because a lot of the guys who train jujitsu as a job, they're going to be putting in a lot more mat time than you. So you've got to make sure if you're a hobbyist that you get the most out of every class. These are some of the mental models that I'm familiar with that help you get the most out of those sessions. And, and similarly, if you are a competitor, these are going to help you even more because if you're training multiple times a day and your learning techniques are really, really fantastic, then you're going to get even more out of each of those techniques and your skill level is going to compound much quicker than anyone who doesn't use these techniques. Yeah, j- just like when we are practicing jiu-jitsu, the goal should always be uh, efficiency and getting the most out of your, your output. So I don't want to work hard necessarily. I want to work smart. Uh, you know, of course, you do want to work hard and train hard, but you want to get the maximum result for the amount of effort that you put in. And hopefully we can address some things that will help you uh, get the maximum results from your training, no matter how limited your uh, your weekly training may be. Fantastic. So there's a few different stages of learning. There's the initial experience of being exposed to new ideas. There is also retaining all of the ideas that are coming into your head. And then there is over the long term, how to ensure that your train, your learning is consistent and that you can overcome the plateaus that everybody hits. We're going to cover each of those in different episodes. There's enough to talk about that we can go quite extensively into any of those categories. But today we're going to be talking specifically about rapid learning. So how to ingest and and understand all of the ideas that are going to be coming at you when you start your, you know, start a new class. And we also want to emphasize that when we say rapid learning, our focus is not on learning a ton of techniques. Um, It is very common to think of jujitsu in a technique based style where, you know, your instructor is going to show you a technique or two every class, or if you're very unfortunate, they're going to show you like four or five every class. Yeah. The problem with thinking like this, guys, is you're always going to try and memorize 
you know, what grip am I supposed to have? Where's my foot supposed to be? Is it supposed to be here? Is it supposed to be over here? Is it supposed... The fact of the matter is that it really doesn't matter where your uh, specifically where grips and certain things are. Variations come up situationally. And because no two roles are the same, it's going to be very difficult to replicate a move 100% exactly how it's taught to you always. So you have to have an adaptable mind when you're training and when you're fighting, especially. And to just know that as long as you follow the concept, the principles, you know, you're fighting levers and, and you follow the alignment concepts, that's when you're going to be able to uh, create variations on the fly rather than trying to replicate. So it's all about ad- adaptation and uh, and following those those core concepts as a as opposed to replicating things that you drill a hundred times in the gym exactly yeah. in that manner. You know, it's great that you mentioned that because something that took me a long time to realize is that if your strategy for jiu-jitsu is memorize the 10 steps to doing a move and then try to do that move in training, it's never going to work because there's one big variable that you cannot control when you're doing a quote-unquote move and that is your opponent. You know, there are infinite variations to what your opponent can do when you're sparring and if your strategy for executing a move is to go through the same 10 steps every time, well, what if at step four your opponent zigs when you expected him to zag? Now that technique doesn't work. And to Matt's point, if you understand the core fundamentals of what you're trying to achieve rather than trying to memorize the specifics of the technique, that gives you the mex- the mental flexibility to think on the fly, right? Um, it doesn't, like Matt said, it doesn't matter so much where your hand is at any given point. It, what matters is that your fundamental movements and strategy is always sound. And if that's the case, then you can make up your own moves and strategies as you go during the role. And and essentially what Steve and I are talking about right now is is what we call principles over techniques. So this is just the idea of of kind of clearing your mind of, of all that clutter. You know, like some some schools, if, if you want to get your blue belt, you got to learn these 40 moves. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's, that's all great to learn 40 moves. But what's really important is thinking about what makes the moves work why I use those moves, when is the appropriate time to use those moves, not, uh, you know, where do I put my foot, which grip do I have? It's more about how do I break my opponent's alignment? How do I uh, win the grip fight? How do I manage the distance? And how do I control levers? These These are the concepts that are going to make you way better, way faster, not learning more moves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I actually think that most instructors and online academies do a disservice to their students because they all seem to adopt the technique-based approach. Very, very few places adopt a principle-based approach to teaching. You know, when you sign up for a lot of online academies, it's just a collection of thousands of little two-minute videos about like some hyper-specific example, like here's how you do a Darce choke from Turtle if your opponent has one knee up or like something super specific. You're never going to remember all of those examples. And even if somehow you are, you're never going to be able to recall them quick enough to apply them on the fly. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure that, not that I'm inside his head, but I'm sure that like even Marcelo Garcia doesn't remember in detail every single technique he's put up on his website, right? Um, This is actually, I think, one of the big weaknesses to the way that people teach jujitsu. I feel that you're much better off understanding the core fundamentals. And when I say fundamentals, I'm not talking about like 
armbar triangle omoplata, right? I'm talking about where you should put your hand, like, you know, general strategies for like how to best utilize your hands, your knees, how to keep alignment, how to keep your yeah. posture structure base. Frames and levers. Exactly. <laughs> like if you understand that stuff, then everything else, all of these specific moves are just like, they're like ornaments you hang on a Christmas tree, right? Like you have your core fundamentals and these specific techniques just become examples that kind of like build on top of those fundamentals. And, and to Matt's point earlier, one of the things that you see at a, at a very high level, especially at black belt level, is it becomes less about knowing all of these different techniques and more about pruning the tree, right? Like rather than trying to add more techniques on, most good black belts that I know, they'll say that like they're actively trying to remove techniques. They, Absolutely. They evaluate the techniques that work for them and the ones that don't. And they carve out the ones that don't and they focus on the ones that do. Having more techniques is not better than, you know, you're, you're, as Bruce Lee said, right? It's, it's much better to have practiced one move 10,000 times than to have practiced 10,000 moves one time. And, and that's what we mean when we talk about principles over techniques. Yeah. And as a professional instructor, like when I, when I go and I'm lucky enough to enjoy someone else teaching a class and I get to just be the student, I can tell right away what kind of instructor they are. Uh, my, my professor, Rob Bernacki, He's, you know, I talk about him very frequently on the, on the podcast. He's, he's really opened my eyes to a conceptual based approach. Um, rather than thinking about specifics in, in techniques, think about, you know, how to break alignment, how to identify frames and activate levers and things like that. Because essentially what, once, once you learn that system, you are able to decode grappling scenarios. You're able to, like, I can watch a, a video on Instagram and decide whether or not that is uh, is going to work or if it's fugazi. And I decide that because I run it through the posture structure base frames and levers filter. I use it as a filter to decide. So if I if I'm watching someone's class, I could decide, you know, to myself, is this instructor teaching me moves or are they teaching me? fundamental concepts that are going to tell me why I do things when I'm going to do things and uh, and essentially teach me how to fish as opposed to trying to give me 40 fishes and <laughs> yeah. say remember all these moves you know <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it, here's how you catch a bass here's how you yeah. catch a salmon here's how you catch a salmon when it's raining outside like you're never going to remember all of these things right exactly and, and, and it's it's hard to clutter your mind with all of these techniques and sometimes mm. it can be quite uh, stressful and detrimental to try to remember all of these techniques. And sometimes, a lot of the time it actually takes the learning process and puts it in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're trying to, you're focusing on the end result and trying to work all your way back to the beginning. Whereas it's much more efficient to start from square one and then build upon that base knowledge to your discussion about Rob. One of the things I like about Rob's material, um, I, I have his, uh, I believe it's his core BJJ formula DVD series, which I think is a four DVD set. And the thing I like about it is he spends the first entire DVD just talking about ideas. Like there's no techniques or anything. He's just talking about ideas, which is something that the vast majority of instructionals don't do. Like usually DVD number one is like, when they think about fundamentals, they're talking about like, hey, here's 50 different armbar setups from closed guard. You know, that that's not fundamental. That's you're, you're still kind of like in the reeds and bulrushes at that point. Like you're you're very deep into the forest and you, you need to take a step back and look at things from a high level before you can really understand how specific situations work. So 
Uh, when we talk about principles over techniques, you know, the example, Matt, that you probably are, are most familiar with is, uh, you know, alignment over position. So mm-hmm. this is something that I know Rob always says. We, we spent the whole first episode talking about alignment and what that means. Um, and just to recap for people who are, who are new to the podcast, um, alignment is basically a unifying theory for everything that happens in jujitsu. Basically, the theory is that Jiu-Jitsu is a game of maintaining your alignment and breaking your opponent's alignment. And that's really all there is. Whether you're talking about sweeps or submissions or anything, it all comes down to keeping your alignment and breaking your opponent's alignment. And when we say alignment, we specifically mean having solid posture, meaning your spine is effectively aligned and utilized. We mean having proper structure, meaning your limbs are strong and utilized effectively. And having proper base, meaning that you can generate or absorb force relative to whatever goal you're trying to achieve. Jiu-Jitsu is about those three things. Together, they are alignment. Um, your job in Jiu-Jitsu is to keep these three things for yourself while taking them away from your opponent. If you want to have a much more in-depth discussion of this, uh, please refer to episode, like, basically one through three, but especially episode one. I'd also suggest uh, doing some research and looking at maybe some of the videos that Rob has made, particularly with Stefan Kesting or on Rob's, uh, his online academy. He covers this in quite a lot of detail. Um, Matt, when we say alignment over position, though, I know this is a mantra of Rob's. What exactly does he mean there? Yeah, so this is this is a really great um, way to basically edit your work, I like to think of it. So alignment over position, I'll just put it in context for you. Over the weekend, one of my students, well, he's actually not my officially my student, but he's a great friend of mine, training partner, uh, visited uh, a school that he, you know, uh, uh, he was a visitor in this school and he rolled with some guys and he realized that, uh, he, he would get, uh, he would almost, you know, they're flowing and he gets stuck in a Kimura, but he realized even though that his, uh, opponent or training partner at the moment had the Kimura, he hadn't effectively internally rotated his shoulder mm-hmm. and even though aesthetically it looked like a Kimura, it was a figure four grip on the arm. We all know what a Kimura looks like, hopefully. Um, his shoulder was totally fine. So it just showed that even though the, the, the guy that had the Kimura on him had, he had a Kimura technically, but he wasn't breaking my friend's alignment. Mm-hmm. And th- thus he was able to escape very easily. So think of it this way. You can have a Kimura grip on someone and have your arms figure forward where it looks like a Kimura. But if you're not following the principles behind the Kimura, in this case, breaking their structure due to an internal rotation of the shoulder joint, uh, the move is going to be useless and your partner is going to escape, right? Have you ever had someone in a Kimura, especially maybe when you're first learning the Kimura and they, they managed to spin out and they get their arm out, right? Mm-hmm. The Kimura, the Kimura didn't work. Or you just can't even free the, pull the arm apart. Like that's, that's one problem where you, you know, you technically have the Kimura grip, but you just can't isolate the arm. That's a Good example of like, I technically have the Kimura. Yes, my hands are where they're supposed to be. All of the boxes are checked, but I have no effective attack strategy from here. I can't do anything to my opponent, even though I'm technically in the position. That's right. It, it, like, there's so much more to uh, to the the position of the Kimura as a system, not just submission, but but there's so much more to using it in your favor at more than just figure fouring your arms. To a beginner, they just say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to grab my wrists and uh, figure four, and then I have the Kimura. But you actually have to be able to immobilize your partner's shoulder by internally rotating it. This involves having a good grip on the wrist. It involves your other arm coming underneath their elbow, creating a wedge between their elbow and the ground. And also, uh, your arm that's grabbing their wrist needs to create a wedge on top of their shoulder. So you have 
uh, levers controlled at both ends and in the middle. And when, only when you get this are you able to actually break your opponent's alignment. And that gives you the true Kimura where you can, you know, you can go for the submission, you can transition to their back, you can use it to get to rear triangles and all types of situations. So it's really important to understand. And even, even when you go there, we can exhaust it even further and start doing things like flaring our wrists forward, like a motorcycle revving type mm-hmm. mo- mo- motion. When, I, when Rob showed me how to do that, I realized like, wow, that you can get so much leverage by utilizing your wrists and we don't think about that very much but it's essentially free leverage so you know how much do you know about lever control Mm -hmm. uh, dictates a lot of how you're going to actually be able to break your opponent's structures it's funny you mention this because the Kimura is a a specific example I remember where a few years ago you know I I never was able to get the Kimura effectively because I would I would technically be in the position like I would be you know maybe I would be on top of the guy I'd have his arm figure forward but I just couldn't pull his arm free i just couldn't get anything out of it. And I remember you actually showed me some pointers as to how to do that more effectively. Because the problem I was having was I was I was basically like almost like chest to elbow on the guy. I was I was like basically leaning over yeah. top of him. Yeah. Where I, whereas what I should have been doing was, you know, one of the mental models we've discussed earlier is isolating a single target. Like I, you need to pull that arm away from the rest of his body and you need to use the power of your core to do that. If the guy still has his arm, like basically like his elbow against his own rib cage, if you aren't able to extract that arm and pull it away from his body, you don't have a Kimura. You might have a figure four on his arm, but he could actually have more leverage over you than you have over him because he mm-hmm. can roll you, right? The thing that makes, that switches um, who's in the driver's seat is if you're able to isolate that arm, you're able to take his arm, put it to your chest, use your core to pull his arm free. And then if his arm is now dangling away from his body, now you're in the driver's seat. But if he still has his arm tucked and his elbows against his rib, he might actually have more control over you than vice versa. That's right. It's all about creating the open elbow. And and for uh, the open elbow series, definitely check out Ryan Hall. Uh, again, we, uh, we'll refer to Ryan Hall. We've referred to him before. We will continue to talk about Ryan Hall because he's such a pioneer in terms of uh, these conceptual-based approaches to jiu-jitsu. But he does have a, a series called The Open Elbow, and it is... Fantastic. And, and it's all about creating that distance from the elbow, uh, the elbow from the body. And that's really what's mm-hmm. going to help you create a Kimura that's going to get you to the back, going to help you pass the guard. And one more thing on the Kimura. So many people, uh, come to me because we're, we are a pretty nogi heavy school. They say, Hey, like, Matt, I just don't know where to grab. Cause I'm not, I'm used to having grips. I'm not used to this nogi game. It seems so fast and whatever. I always tell them, well, the Kimura is a great place to start because you have a two on one type control on a lever. And there's not, you're right, you can't really grab cloth in Nogi, but if you get a strong Kimura grip, you can use it to pass the guard, get to the back, submit, like I've said before. So, so definitely a two on one base control like a Kimura is, is one of the more dominant grips that you can use in a, in a Nogi scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, another good example of alignment over position and probably something that especially new people can relate to is trying to finish a submission from close guard, right? You know, everyone learns right off the bat, like, hey, here's how you do an arm bar or a triangle or a collar choke from close guard. And you can sit there and you can know all of the specific steps, but 
I think everyone knows it's actually really hard to get one of those submissions on an, on a resisting opponent. And it took me a long time to realize why I was having trouble. Like I, I would do everything that my instructor said, you know, I would, I, I would grab the arm and I would pivot my hips and I throw my leg up and I would inevitably get like stack passed or something. And I, it took me a long time to, I almost gave up on these moves because I thought like, clearly this just isn't working. But one thing I've realized is that uh, you really, especially from this position, it's a great example of why alignment matters more than position. Like I can technically have the guy ready to go in an arm bar where I've, I've got his arm and I'm grabbing onto his arm and he's in my close guard and I'm starting to turn my hips. But if he's still got his alignment, it's a useless endeavor, right? If he still has strong posture, strong base, and I haven't pulled his arm away enough to, to, to break his structure, there's nothing there. And it can, it might deceptively look like I've got an armbar, but I don't have it. The thing I've, I've been actually teaching, um, some of the students I work with recently is instead of when you're trying to attack from like close guard, instead of trying to like quote unquote do a submission, don't even think about the submission. Just constantly attack their alignment. Just you constantly be trying to pull one of their arms away from their body, cross it over their center line. Constantly be attacking their base. Um, don't even think about a submission because if you break their alignment enough, they will basically fall into the submission eventually, right? Like if you just keep pulling that arm and wobbling your opponent, eventually they're going to fall into that arm bar. Whereas if you just try to arm bar them while they still have strong posture and strong base, you're actually giving them an advantage because yeah. now you've tied yourself to them while they still yeah. have alignment and that yeah. it gives them the ability to exploit your body mechanics. Yeah, you're going to get passed in that situation. I, I love that example when trying to armbar someone from the close guard uh, when they're fully postured. There's just, they just, you give them the resources that they need to escape. And like Ryan Hall's always talking about, it's all about denying your opponent the resources need to escape. Yeah. Uh, so, th so in this case, it, it, we're talking about alignment, posture, mm -hmm. structure, base. Um, always break, whether you're going for a sweep, a submission, always try and break your opponent's alignment, their posture structure base before you execute your technique. Yeah, another good example too that I've I've been experimenting with is um, trying to armbar someone from mount. You know, they, I think a lot of people get stuck here where they go for the armbar from mount, and then the guy in the bottom is just like grabs his hands together, and then eventually he's able to extract his elbow, and now he's on top. Um, if you're doing that, then what's happening is you're trying to put the armbar position before alignment. Like if you grab, if you're on top of the guy and you're grabbing his arm and trying to pull it, but he's still got his arm tight to his body, you really haven't broken his alignment first. Like you've moved right to the armbar without having his alignment broken. Whereas your better bet is to break his alignment and then just let him fall into the submission, right? Like if you move to like a high mount and you create a wedge on the far side, on his far arm, and you've got both of his arms just kind of sticking up and not grabbing onto anything, eventually he's going to just like wind up in the arm bar automatically. And you don't have to worry about the, all of the different steps you were supposed to do. It's just a matter of constantly attacking alignment. Yeah. And to your point, Steve, arm bar from mount. Uh, if you are trying to arm bar someone from mount and seemingly, you know, that you got their arm, you got their elbow, uh, you got their elbow deep in between your legs and you go for your arm bar, you turn, you spin, you fall on your butt and fall back and then they come up what's happened is you've actually given them your uh, your base you've yeah. sacrificed your own base trying to get this move um and thus throwing your own body out of alignment like you've traded alignment for position in this case yeah a, a lot of a lot of the time you can finish the arm bar from the mount it while staying in base you, mm -hmm. you don't have to throw your leg over and fall back Right. If if you don't have correct wedges on the sho uh, on the shoulder and breaking the posture with the leg over the head, and they're able to come up on top, not only did you not 
uh, correctly utilize uh, utilize your wedges and break their posture uh, and their structure, but you've given up your own base. So this is where the score game, the you know uh, three to three posture structure base comes in handy. We always want to minimize their posture structure base while we maximize our posture structure base. And uh, just hammering all of this home, you know, instead of thinking of the term uh, like position over submission because that's a very vague term, mm-hmm. try to think of breaking alignment that lead breaking alignment creating control over posture structure base which leads to submission yeah we talked about about control we talked about this in the first episode but basically when you if you keep breaking your alignment or your opponent's alignment and you get to the point where his his quote-unquote alignment scorecard is basically zero that's probably a submission right there right like if, if you can just continually attack your opponent's posture structure and base until he has nothing that's basically a submission and that's a far more productive way to get to a submission than trying to just do like steps, right? Like worrying about, oh, does my hand go on his bicep? Does my foot go over his face? Like it's far more productive to just think about constantly attacking his alignment. And it, when you can get his alignment completely eliminated, you basically forced your opponent to fall into a submission and that's the end of the match. Yep. Yeah. So one of the things that's fantastic about this framework is that when you when you talk about like alignment, it gives a name to something that um, I think a lot of people don't really think about. And and this is something I found helpful as a way to me- to remember things that are otherwise challenging or difficult. Is I will give them names. So and, and this is actually a pretty common learning technique, right? If you get if you assign something to a, a name, um, it's often easier to remember it because if if nothing else, it makes it easier to recall it in the future. I mean, a common example is I know a guy named um i know a guy named sean who does like a particular type of guard um and i first encountered it really and realized how effective it was playing against him so now in my mind i basically just call that sean guard no no one else uses that name but i call it that and it's a lot easier to remember that than it is to describe in detail all of the different things that he's doing right it's kind of it takes all of these things and it distills it down into a single concept um this is one of the things i like about the alignment framework is if i can say alignment I, if I can say keep your alignment it's a lot easier for you to understand what I'm telling you to do than if I say oh you got to worry about don't flare your elbow at, oh don't expose your leg oh you want to make sure that your one knee is forward and the, like it gets super complicated but if I just say check your alignment if you've been following these episodes up until now then you probably have a pretty good inkling of what I'm asking you to do yeah I mean the thing about the the alignment concepts that Rob's taught me is is just it's, it's beautifully vague it applies to no specific situations but all situations so like you said see like when it, when it, when it comes time to be an instructor and you're trying to relay you know intense detailed information to a, a variety of different skill levels in a classroom set setting it makes it a lot easier to have language that is beautifully vague because uh assuming everyone knows what a lever is and what i mean when i say control the lever uh, internally rotating the lever or whatever i don't have to say put my hand here put my other hand here do this do this and run through 10 steps or i could just say you know control the lever internally rotating his shoulder and you'll know exactly what i mean so it's it's a much easier way to relay information to students uh learning in the in this format and it's a it's a I find it's also a much easier way to make your students instructors faster because they understand the underlying principles that make the moves work yeah yeah so so far we've talked about basically focusing on principles and big ideas over specific examples and in particular focusing on keeping your alignment 
over any individual given random position. Uh, we've also talked about assigning names to these big ideas once you see them so that they're easier to understand and recall. What's interesting is what we just described is the process of creating a mental model. That, that's what a mental model is. It's where you understand, you learn a core principle that applies universally and you give it a name so that it's easier to identify it in the future. That, that's what a mental model is. So everything we've talked about so far, basically in a nutshell, we're saying use mental models. <laughs> that, yeah. That's basically what we've asked you to do here. Um, going beyond that, the kind of another thing that can really impede your ability to learn rapidly is it, you know, jujitsu can be intimidating, uh, especially as a beginner. It, it can be intimidating because it's, you know, it might be your first experience with like a combat sport, right? Um, and even though jujitsu is a relatively safe combat sport, it is still a, a difficult situation if it's something that you're not used to. One of the ways that you can really speed up your learning is to identify the things that the situations you're afraid of and to try those situations, right? To put yourself into those situations. Uh, something my instructor always told me, and it, I, I, I think a lot of people have heard this saying, um, you want to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and what this basically said, means is you want to be so fluent with and comfortable with difficult situations that they're no longer difficult. Um, this is a, in, in fact, you actively want to seek out difficult situations because they are probably exposing holes in your game. Now, there are a few ways that this can manifest. You know, one way in the simplest case is maybe you're just bad at getting out of side control. Well, the best way to get good is to practice a lot of side control. Maybe you're struggling against bigger, stronger opponents. The best way to get better is to find the biggest, strongest guy in your class and spar with him. But an aspect of this can also be mental, right? It can be fear-based. It can be a situation that you're afraid of. Um, you know, maybe there is, maybe someone in particular intimidates you. You know, it's, it's not uncommon, um, as a casual guy to like be afraid of sparring with competitors or to be afraid of sparring with like MMA fighters who are showing up to your grappling class. But honestly, you're probably going to learn a lot more from that experience than you're going to learn from just training with the same guy over and over and over again. So I, I call this principle, um, growth from discomfort, right? You want to, if you want to greatly increase your speed of learning, you want to identify the situations where you're uncomfortable and focus on getting comfortable in those situations because that's where big growth tends to happen. Yeah, basically you're, you're describing facing your fears mm -hmm. um, and as a competitor. Or even just areas where you're not particularly competent. Right, right yeah. I, I mean, that's how, sort of how I look at it is you could, you could in one sense be, uh, you could have anxiety or fear from something and that's much more of a personal thing mm -hmm. or you could want to target let's say escaping the armbar position which yeah. is more of a like a technique approach right so so first the in terms of fears and anxiety like you described everything you just said was great where you know maybe you're fearing rolling against higher ranks or bigger guys or or competing even it's it's like uh i know for myself after competing at the pans, it's like nothing, nothing really stressed me out in everyday life after I did that because, yeah. because it's a stressful thing going out in front of everyone and putting yourself on the line. So it, as a, as a general rule throughout life, you know, whether you're in the business world or doing jujitsu or, you know, family life, facing the challenges and, uh, things that are challenging and your fears are generally the things that you grow from. Th those are the things that will benefit you in the long run, even though in the moment it's something that's discomfort, usually discomfort in this context leads to growth. Yeah. And, uh, also in, in other, what we were talking about before in, in terms of techniques, it's like, if I'm, 
if I'm a black belt and I'm surrounded by lower ranks like white belts and blue belts, um, if no one can pass my guard, I'm never really going to be able to spar uh, escaping rear mount or I'm never going to be able to uh, practice getting out of the arm bar or getting out of the triangle or whatever. So so sometimes growth and discomfort could mean, you know, put, allowing your partners to get bad positions on you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about this more later in the in the podcast about um, about uh, training with a purpose mm-hmm. and whatnot. But but being able to uh sometimes concede bad positions and letting the positions get pretty bad is going to help you get deeper into your defense and build up your defenses I mean, before you take the way steve uh one guy i want to mention is gary tonin who says you know i've I, I usually sub- get submitted 15 times in a class or something like that. Tell me, tell me you don't have an ego, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when you have a, a mindset like that, where hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna let someone put me in a full arm bar, or I'm gonna let someone put me in a in a heel hook, and I'm gonna see where my defenses actually are, how deep I can get in. It gives you such more of a an intimate understanding of that technique because, uh, and we'll talk about it later. But your your objective is to target that one position that makes you uncomfortable and then to rep it out so that you maximize your growth in that one specific area. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you, you know, the examples that you brought up are, are awesome. Like targeted training is so critical to getting good at jujitsu and being willing to go to those areas where you're weak is really the core of growing from discomfort, right? Like the thing to remember is that discomfort is temporary, but growth is permanent, right? You put yourself into a bad situation or a difficult situation now, and the growth that you encounter is going to stay with you forever. That's, and like you said earlier, this is universal, not just to jujitsu, but to almost any endeavor of life, um, which is one of the reasons why we can call this a mental model, because putting yourself in the these challenging situations um, and learning from them is one of the ways that you can expand your knowledge, your skill, your experience, and it better equips you to succeed in the future. Um, yeah, and when it comes to you know training, or actually something to mention, you know, and you always want to be trying to find guys who are better than you to train with. Um, that's one of the areas where you can really grow from discomfort is by sparring with people who are better than you. But I, I know that some gyms have this stigma where like it's uncool for the lower belt to ask the higher belt for a role. That's really stupid. Um, you should, if your gym says you can't ask the black belts for a role, like you might want to consider getting a different gym. That's ridiculous. Um, you should ask anybody, be able to ask anybody for a role. That should not really be a, a point of debate. Um, now, similarly, sometimes you are the most senior guy in the school and this creates a difficult situation because you might not have someone more senior. Um, in those cases, two options. Number one is what Matt suggested where you can focus on targeted sparring. But number two, that something I found helpful is I like to try to focus on encouraging my training partners to get better because if I'm always able to like pass my training partner's guard, my objective then switches to helping that person get better at defeating me. So I'll tell them what I'm doing and I'll tell yeah. them how to beat me. And then that trick or whatever I'm doing is going to be more difficult next time. I, I want to help my training partners rise to my level. And as a result, I mean, I spar with like white belts who really give me a hard role because I've taught them how to beat me. And yeah. now it's on me 
to learn how to beat the person that I used to be because yeah. they, they know what my game is and they know specifically how to beat me. So that forces me to get better as yeah. well. It's a great way to build each other up in the room and, and to, uh, you know, keeping secrets from your training partners is probably one of the worst things you can do. Mm-hmm. I always try and tell all my students what I'm doing. And, yeah. and if, especially if they ask me, but even if they don't, if I notice that I'm hitting a technique over and over and no one knows what I'm doing, it, it does me a disservice to keep doing that move and mm-hmm. to never let them get into the next phase of defense because I'm just denying him that information. It's kind of a selfish move, yeah. but but it's it's foolish because it hurts me in the end if I'm trying to uh, reach a goal of a being a really high level, right? So I will plateau if we ne- if my training partners don't improve. Yeah. And uh, another another example that I love of growth from discomfort. This is one of the biggest ones that I've had in the last few years. Like over the last uh, three or four years, I've really studied leg locks under Rob, and and just you know we've developed mm-hmm. a system that's just really uh, fundamentally really conceptually sound. And a lot of people come to me to learn for leg locks. And, and I, whenever I train with people, I catch a lot of leg locks if they come from a school where they don't learn leg locks. And, um, the biggest thing that I tell people is, you know, you got to sit in the pocket. So when I'm teaching you leg locks, the worst thing you can do when we roll is avoid my leg entanglements. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that is a skill all on its own because you might go against someone who's a better leg locker than you and it might be wise for you to avoid their entanglements. But yeah, in training, when we're trying to, when the, when the goal is to learn and not to be victorious, it's important to sit in the pocket and leg entangle with. That's the, it's the only way to get better is yeah, to put yeah. in the time, to put in the repetition. So if someone does a private with me and they're, you know, we're rolling or whatever, and then they're trying to avoid my leg entanglements, they're, they're actually kind of just giving me money for nothing. Yeah. Uh, it's better to sit there, you know, whether, whatever position you're in, double seated position, or maybe we're sparring like a 411 or whatever, and, uh, we're gonna work our way out. And that is scary for someone who doesn't understand where the leg locks are coming from, where they're safe, doesn't understand. Maybe they think, you know, they listen to Joe Rogan and they're all indoctrinated and think that, you know, a heel hook, you don't feel anything. And then all of a sudden it's on and your legs shattered. It's like, it's, you know, that, that's because, he knows nothing about leg locks and that's why people are afraid of leg locks is because there's such a there's a stigma there's a stigma there's fear mongering that goes on and it's all a lot of it is from you know indoctrinated from IBJJF and and really leg lock is no different from any other joint lock you know it's just mm-hmm. that we don't we get scared when we think about our knees blowing out and it, it is scary but when we focus on control and alignment and lever con- and lever based control concepts that's when it, it becomes not scary anymore and the only way to really get familiar with this is to uh realize that hey i want to learn leg locks i'm going to go with a really high level leg locker i'm going to get heel hooked I'm going to get leg locked. I'm going to get tapped a lot. As soon as you can come to terms with that and as soon as you can sit in the pocket and actually untangle legs, that's when you're going to get the maximum growth. And you'll never grow if your goal is to go with a leg locker and just avoid all the situations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, like in, a, in an actual fight, avoidance is can be a great strategy. Actually, I do it all the time, but it's not a valid strategy for learning. Yeah. Like if, if I want, yeah, if I'm fighting you, then yeah, I want to avoid your area of strength. But when I'm training for the purposes of actually learning, I need to put myself in these difficult positions and be willing to lose, right? I need to go into the, the position that, go into the dragon's den where I know I can't win and be willing to look stupid in front of everybody. Um, the, this is actually, we're probably going to talk about this guy a lot more in, in the future, but 
Uh, we've talked about him briefly in the past. Uh, there's a jujitsu black belt named Josh Waitskin who wrote a real who wrote a really great book called The Art of Learning. Highly, highly, rec- highly recommended. Um, and this is a guy who's been a world champion in a variety of different things. And one of the mental models he talks about is called investing in loss. And basically, what he's saying is. Look, if you want to learn something, you've got to be bad at it before you can be good at it. You've got to be willing to lose a hundred times before you start to win. And I think everyone who started jujitsu from the ground up, like you probably know what I'm talking about. Like if ever, if you remember what your first day on the mats was like, you probably got tapped like 20 times, unless you are trained at a school where you aren't allowed to do submissions on the new guy, which is honestly fair. Yeah. <laughs> at or, least on day one. <laughs> or, or unless you're like an absolute phenom. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Which also happens. Yeah, but, but even then... If you are an absolute phenom, right, and um, you're still going to be inhibiting your own growth if you're afraid of difficult situations. So what Josh talks about is situations where he would go against guys way better than him, knowing he would lose. And for the first few months, he would lose repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly until he didn't anymore. And what he observed was that a lot of these guys who were beating him every single time, as soon as he caught up to them and started beating them, suddenly they didn't want to train with him anymore. Funny that, right? Um, And it's because they were afraid now of, of losing to him. So the the way to get ahead is you've got to be willing to lose. Um, and, and actually, sometimes this I, I find as an ego killing exercise, this can be beneficial. Like sometimes I will willingly put myself in a terrible p- position knowing that I might get tapped by like a white belt or a blue belt or, or I'll give them the weapons. I'll teach them how to beat me. And I they might beat me. It, it's happened all the time, right? Um, and yeah, I might lo- I might wind up looking stupid in front of the class. They might, someone might judge me, but I really don't care. If yeah. I come back tomorrow and I'm better than I was today because of it, that's all that matters. Yeah, and if you if you if that happens to you, Steve, and you're a, you're the black belt in the room, and you don't care, that shows everyone, mm-hmm. hey, he's he's the highest ranked guy, and he doesn't care. That's pretty cool. That sets a standard inside the room where, hey, like yeah. we're actually not trying to beat each other. We're just trying to learn. It's a laboratory. Right? So, yeah, exactly. So, that I find that that creates a really friendly and uh, productive atmosphere as opposed to like a shark tank where everyone's trying to, you know, kill each other, right? Yeah. Like, I, I tap to lower ranks in my gym all the time. I'm not afraid to say it, right? Because, because when I'm afraid to say it, when I'm afraid to get my guard passed by a lower rank, that's where there's ego involved. And, you know, your ego is not your amigo, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to, to shut that down truthfully. You can say that you do it, but do you allow people to get into positions where your white belts can tap you, take yeah. your back and all this stuff? And do you tap from a legitimate attack or do you try to beast mode your way out of it? Yeah, right? we, we all know those guys that don't like to tap yeah. and, and that can result in injury. And that's really not good for anyone because, of course, the guy gets injured. But also you feel like an idiot, too, because you deserve to get that submission. Yeah. You know that you can hurt them, but you don't want to take Take it to that point where you know you're going to hurt them. And yeah. that that's where there, there's an ego thing on on the defender's part where mm. they need to come to terms and grow as a person. Yeah, I, I used to train with this black belt instructor who used to brag about how he hadn't been tapped at all in 10 years. Yeah. Like he used to brag about this. He probably sucks. He, incidentally, <laughs> he was the worst instructor I've ever had, which is the reason why he's my former instructor. Uh, uh, but I remember one time he was rolling with some lower level guy and the lower level guy legitimately got him in a footlock and he refused to tap. And yeah, he got out and all of that, but he was limping around for like the next week. And it's like, what did you achieve by doing this? Yeah. You know, are you, do you think you're impressing your students by how tough and how much of a badass yeah. you are? Your focus in a gym should not be looking like the top guy. Like your focus yeah. should be imparting knowledge, especially at a senior level. And the first thing that you can do, the most important thing you can do, hearkening back to our episode about gym culture, is create an environment of psychological safety and idea communism, where people are not afraid to challenge everybody. They're not afraid to introduce 
new ideas. They give legitimate feedback and the instructor is no better than anybody else. They're just, they have more knowledge in their head and they've got more ingrained muscle memory, but the instructor is just a human being too, right? Like even the best in the world get tapped sometimes. That sh this should not be a point of, um, of, of like pride that you've never been tapped. When you tell me that, that just, you're just telling me you've never learned, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I totally agree with you, ex except for the part where you said idea communism, which is pretty much an oxymoron. Yeah. But, but now let's, uh, what, just one example I'd love to talk about investing in loss. It's, it's not related to actual uh, jujitsu techniques, but at, more as a business owner and uh, as a gym owner. For those, for those of you out there that are trying to train as much as you can and possibly want to dedicate your life to uh, uh, jujitsu as a business one day, um, investing in loss is something that's comes up so much, especially when you're starting any business. So mm -hmm. I'll just give you an example. Like uh, nowadays, so much marketing is done over social media and whatnot. And when you're starting a business, you don't really know what's going to bring in leads. You don't know what's going to generate revenue. You're kind of just throwing yourself into it and do it. You know, if you're if you're passionate and skilled and you care about it and you nurture it, you're, you're pretty much destined for success. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'll give you an example. When I opened my gym, I didn't know where I should be putting in ads. So, you know, I'd put purchase ads in the paper. I'd do Facebook ads. I'd, I'd buy signage. I'd put a sign up over on over there. I'd put a sign up uh, uh, down the street. I'd put a, like, I'll be honest, 90% of the things I did had zero return. So I, I, I've, I'd say in the, in the three years that my gym's been open, I've, I've spent thousands of dollars on ads that literally did nothing. And, um, you could say in one sense that this this was really a loss because I didn't gain any leads from a lot of this advertising. But in another point of view, I gained a lot because I learned what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So now I know that I don't need to put money towards, uh, you know, sandwich boards down the street when homeless people just steal them and drunk people vandalize them and whatnot. I know that that doesn't work. But I know that some Instagram ads that I did that I did, did have return, right? Uh, another great example is Groupon, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, I talked to a lot of people who said, don't use Groupon because you're gonna, you're gonna downplay the value of your, of your, of your business. And it's not going to be, it's not going to really keep the value that you offer. You know, you're a high level instructor. You want to offer, you want to get paid for what you deserve. I said, Hey, you know what? Like that logic's right. But then I thought, well, you know, any exposure is good exposure. So the thing with Groupon is I put an ad on there and you know, I, boom, I take off like 80% of the cost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you can buy two months and I'll take 80% off the two months. So I'm taking a hit in terms of the revenue. But am I taking a hit? Because I still get a small percentage of that for free. Groupon gets, you know, uh, about half the, per the percentage of that I make. So I'm making literally peanuts. But I can't lie, I've brought in probably 10 new leads from Groupon, mm -hmm. which have become loyal members. So... In the moment, it seems like I'm taking a hit. It seems like I'm giving away stuff for free, right? But actually, those leads keep coming back. And down the road, I've actually it's actually been quite profitable. So as a business mm -hmm. person, you need to know that uh, you're not always going to get those those reliable leads. You're not going to get that return right away. You've got to invest in loss and learn from what does work and what doesn't work, which is very much like jujitsu when yeah. you're trying to put together your game. The, thank you so much for bringing that up because the, the thing that this really illustrates is that when we say investing in loss, this is not just a mental model that applies 
to fighting. Like, we're not just saying, like, going to the gym and put yourself in bad techniques or in bad positions and you're going to lose. I mean, that, that's that's part of it. You know, when you're doing actual jujitsu, you want to put yourself in situations where you're going to lose so you can learn. But this is a mental model that applies to almost all areas of life. If you are starting a new business, very few businesses are roaring successes from day one. Um, most businesses lose a lot of money before they start making money. And, and this is a good example of that. And, and actually, as a guy who kind of specializes in this kind of stuff, uh, you know, I, again, I'm kind of taking a nerd detour here, but there's a really great book completely unrelated to jujitsu, but it's, it's about starting up a business. It's called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Um, it's kind of a dry read, but what he basically talks about is he says that like, look, when you're, when you're a startup, when you're creating a new company, your objective is not to be like making money hand over fist from day one. Your objective is to acquire knowledge about what works and what doesn't. And you got to experiment eight ways to Sunday, measure what's working, kill the things that aren't working and double down on the things that are. So he talks about how you have to have this feedback loop where you try things, you measure what works, you get rid of the things that don't, and you you, you double down on the things that do. And you just keep doing that. And it's a very like experimental based way of running a business. And that's a lot smarter than like the old school way of like, I'm going to write a hundred page business plan and I'm going to stick to that regardless of whether it works or not. Jiu-jitsu yeah. is very similar in terms of the way you want to learn, right? We, we've talked before about how a good jujitsu academy is like a laboratory. Um, you want to try all of your ideas. You want to use the scientific method. You don't want to be afraid of the situations where you're going to lose or fail. And you want to use that as a learning opportunity to get better and better and better over time. Yeah, the scientific method being that you're always trying to take apart what you think works. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's exactly what Rob does, right? Like, I'll go to I'll go to Rob's school every few months. I try to go as much as I can, but I'll be like, hey, man, like. I learned, I, I figured out this new way to do a heel hook or I figured out this new br- mechanic or whatever. Usually he'll shit on it right away and be like, oh, I, he either already does that or, you know, this is why this won't work. It's very hard to stump Rob. But if something does work and he really likes it, he immediately tries to take it apart. And that's what we start doing from there. Something, If something seems that it's really good, uh, a good idea if you have no ego and you want to reach the highest level possible is immediately start taking it apart, disassembling mm-hmm. it find out why exactly does it work and what, how exactly can we take it apart? Yeah. That is something in jujitsu and in business that just, it'll just elevate you to a greater level, but it literally, you really can't approach it with ego. You have to be able to be critical of yourself and be able to, to, to take a step back and say, Hey, there's a better way to do this. Most likely, Let's get our hands dirty. Let's figure out what that is. Yeah, much much like a scientist would when they when they experiment, you have to objectively evaluate your results. And you shouldn't be, you know, you don't want to necessarily be super happy when you find things that that work. You should actually be happy when you find things that break under pressure because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying yeah. to you're you know, you're trying to break the things that you think are actually working. You're trying to identify the holes in your idea. You don't you don't want to assume that everything you do is right and then hope to be proven right. You want to actively look for holes and try to fix them. That's the scientific method in a nutshell. Yeah, I'll, I'll warn you though, if, if if you 
you are like us and you and the scientific method is one of your main mental models uh, when it comes time to identify whether a move is good or not, you're probably going to become a snob like me <laughs> because you can't help but look at, you know, you'll go on Instagram and look up moves or whatever and you can't help but notice that like 90% of the stuff out there isn't conceptually as sound as you think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of it is just eye candy and made to look flashy. Mm-hmm. And with, with the posture structure base frames and uh, levers theory, it really does turn you into a snob. And that's a good thing in mm-hmm. a way, but also just realize that you might come off sounding like a dick. To some people, <laughs> so, but I'm totally cool yeah. with that because uh, I, I don't care about feelings. I care about, uh, te- I care about conceptually sound jujitsu. That's yeah. my business. And, you know, a big part of this, you know, we talked about this earlier. We talked about creating a safe and an open learning environment in your school. And part of doing things scientifically in this, in this manner is you have to be willing to challenge yourself. You need to be willing to challenge your instructor. You need to be willing to challenge your gym. You know, if you find a, a hole in your game, or even if you don't find a hole, um, you, you know, you need to be looking for those and you need to explore ways to patch those up. You need to also be willing to provide feedback to your training partners, your instructor, um, about how to improve the culture of your gym and the training style of your gym. You know, in a good gym, your instructor should be open to feedback and open to improvement as well. If you have a closed-minded instructor who is not willing to uh, receive feedback or who becomes very defensive when confronted or about this kind of stuff, then that's something that you might want to use as an indicator that maybe you're not in the best place, right? Yeah. You're... Um, I, in order for a gym to be a quality place to train, it needs to be a place that is open to being challenged in, of course, in a friendly and respectful manner. Yeah. Um, and, but, and this is the same for a workplace too, right? Like if you work at a company that doesn't care what you think, uh, and doesn't listen to your ideas for improvement, you're probably going to quit. Same logic should apply when you're training at a jujitsu school. Yep. Awesome. Um, So this kind of ties into something that I I don't want to spend a ton of time about because we've talked about this extensively in prior episodes, but a big part of this is keeping a beginner's mind, right? You know, you want to make sure that in all areas of life, you approach things as if you are a white belt and you don't allow your ego to become defensive and deflect good ideas or good feedback. In order to achieve the things we've talked about here, like actually using the scientific method effectively, you have to have the mindset of a beginner. If you come in and you think, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a whatever colored belt. I don't need to take your advice. I mean, granted, you might not think that consciously, but even if that, that feeling is in the back of your mind, you're impeding your ability to learn. Um, it, the, the easiest way to determine if you've got a problem with this, and, and everyone does to some degree, it, you, you will never truly kill your ego here. If you immediately feel yourself getting defensive or you feel the need to justify yourself when you receive feedback or you get emotionally flustered or angry, those are indicators that you could do a better job of having a beginner's mind, right? Like if you, if, if someone comes to you and they say, um, you know, hey, I think your, your arm bar is a bit sloppy. Here's how you can improve it. You know, at worst case scenario, if you yell at them or you deny it, then okay, you definitely have a beginner's mind problem. But even if you feel the need to, to explain your way out of it and to say, oh, but I feel like I, I did this because of X, Y, Z. Well, you know what? You're explaining because your ego is threatened. You feel the need to defend yourself. Just take the feedback. You don't have to necessarily respond to it. The person could be wrong, but you'll never know unless you listen. So you always want to have a beginner, a beginner's mind in everything you do. Hopefully those are some good tricks to help you identify if you are experiencing ego defensiveness. Yeah. And if you are new, uh, like you said, Steve, if you're, if you're in a gym where your instructor doesn't 
deal with questions very well. Uh, that's a good indication that you probably should be going to another gym or at least trying some other different different places to train. You always want to, as an instructor, I love when students ask me questions. I love when you guys ask me questions. Uh, it's, it makes ask us more questions, ask us more questions. It, it, it enriches the podcast and the, and creates a dialogue between us and the listener and, uh, questions really for me as an instructor is one of the more fun parts of why I'd like to be an instructor in jujitsu. And essentially when, when someone asks me a question, I take it as, okay, someone's challenging my ideas. They're using the scientific method. Like, yeah, I, now I need to, now I'm on the spot and I need to justify why I'm doing what I'm doing. And Mm -hmm. we all get better from questions. I get better as the instructor because I have to justify what I teach and why I'm teaching it. You get better as a student because you learn, you should always ask many questions. There's no stupid questions keep the questions coming. Yeah. And the, the indicator, another indicator of a quality instructor is they won't feel the need to justify or explain every question if they realize they can't. A good instructor will actually say, oh, you know what? I don't know. Maybe you're right. Or I don't know. I need to look into that. Yeah. If your instructor always has an answer for everything, that's often a red flag because nobody knows everything. The thing I love about my instructor is when I ask him a question, I say, hey, why did you put your arm there? What's the benefit? He might say, you know what? I don't know. It's just a habit. Let's think about this. Let's talk about maybe there's something more effective that we could do, right? That's a good example of someone who has a beginner's mind when training. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Matt, but let's kind of tie this up with a very important mental model, and that is training with purpose. Mm-hmm. So we kind of talked about this briefly earlier, but basically when you've got a – when you go into a training session or actually when you – engage in pretty much anything in life, you should at least spend some cursory time understanding what your goals are for the day. And there's, you know, there's different ways to goal set. We don't need to go into this in detail. Um, But there's like long-term goals and then there's short-term goals. I mean, my my long-term goal might want to be, hey, I want to be a black belt or I want to be a world champion. My short-term goal might be today I want to work on turtle guard, right? Like there's there's a lot of different things that, that you can do here. And in terms of how you train with purpose, um, you know, there, there's a, a variety of ways to do this. One way is, as we talked about earlier, actively put yourself in the position that you want to work on or actively start in that position. Uh, something I've been doing for the last few months is when I start a role, I will immediately go to turtle or I will immediately uh, give my opponent my back. Like I'll kind of just jump on top of them like donkey guard, except I'll give them my back. Um, by doing that over the last few months, my my turtle and my back defense have gotten so good, which, which is great because as a little guy, I'm used to kind of getting tossed around and getting into these bad positions. It, it can be very very hard to stop a larger opponent from forcing you to turtle. So if you are very good at defending from that position, it dramatically increases your chances of success through a, over a long fight. Um, this is something that you want to do. You want to be consciously aware of where your blind spots and your weaknesses are and focus on those, right? That That's really what we mean when we say training with purpose. And essentially what you're talking about is investing in loss. I mean, yeah, you're taking, yeah, yeah. A, you're taking a, a position of disadvantage and then you're trying to use it to improve your certain aspects of your game. Uh, like you said, going into training with an objective, like I'm, I, I just want to work on not getting my guard pass today mm-hmm. is a great objective. Or maybe that you learned a new type of guard and Hey, I'm going to put that through the ringer today. I'm going to try and roll and see if I can make this work. If I can get a sweep, that's great. If I can just prevent my guard from getting passed, that's great. Whatever your mm-hmm. goal is um, that, that is a great uh, idea to have in training. And I, uh, 
you can even do in competition too. Of course, there's a little bit more on the line. <laughs> it really takes someone who's willing to put themselves out there to do this. Uh, but Rob, for example, went and competed in, I want to say Revolution down in Seattle a few months ago. And, you know, like me, Rob is a guard puller. And uh, most people in, in jiu-jitsu competitions will just pull guard. And Rob looks like a guard puller. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't think you, he'd deny that. You look at the guy and you're, that, like, but you're like, that guy's a guard puller. Yeah. I can just tell. Yeah, but I mean, mo- most of the guys from Rob's club pull guard. Uh, in li- unless you come from a stand-up background, mm-hmm. most of the time you're going to pull guard. So, um, you know, he, he said before this competition, he said, like, I'm going to go in there and I don't care who's standing across from me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to wrestle. Like, I'm not going to pull guard. I'm telling myself right now, I refuse to pull guard in this mm-hmm. match, which is, it's a big goal to set, especially when you want to win and you don't want to look like an ass and you're a gym owner. Like when I go into competition, my goal is to win generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in training, I have no problem training with a purpose and setting a certain objectives and letting myself get into vulnerable positions. But when I compete, I want to win. So I can't even let myself do that, right? I'm not going to go into competition and be like, okay, I'm only going to stand with my opponent, right? Like that, that takes that takes some serious balls to be able to to do that to have that goal in front of a in front of people watching you right mm-hmm. uh he he actually didn't win the match because he was playing right into the strength of the other guy but he put himself against uh actually a pretty high level wrestler and didn't didn't lose by much and uh you know as a result of that he gained from that in the long run so you know it's it's more about growth in the long term for him he wanted to see how he would do in competition focusing on a a strategy that he's not usually comfortable with and again like we talked about uh growth from discomfort stepping out of your comfort zone that is usually the path to growth yeah yeah and when we're talking about this particular strategy of like going in and saying here's the the thing i want to improve on uh first of all i would recommend spending at least a few seconds to think about this before anything you do regarding jujitsu whether it is prepping for a tournament or setting a long-term goal or even just before you go to class every single day even before you watch an online video spend at least a few seconds thinking here is what I want to get out of this experience and and actually this is a positive um, thing to do in almost every important area of your life even at work you know when I come in in the morning I spend some time thinking and I I write down here's what I want to get done today Um, you know when when I get up in the morning I like to just take a few quick notes and say here are the big things I want to knock off today Um, that's what training with purpose is about. And and a big part part of training with purpose is actually on the flip side, after you've completed whatever it is you were trying to do, doing some reflection and evaluating whether you succeeded or not and and looking for areas that you could improve next time. It's kind of ties back to what we talked about earlier, that constant cycle of setting a goal, trying it, and then measuring your results and then doing that in another loop. And every time you go through that loop, you get a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. Yeah. And every time you measure your results and essentially like after practice, you might be debriefing or whatever with your instructor or by yourself. You can even, or, I debrief by myself. Yeah, I by just your, take notes. By yourself or even as a group, in a group setting, you can mm-hmm. do this as well. Um, then we can start to think of the next day. We can think of strategies that can help us 
you know, things that we did good, things that we could have done better, uh, coming up with those strategies and answers to improve uh, is just going to make you get to another level, which yeah. is what we're trying to do here. Yeah, yeah. And one more thing I, I want to talk about when it comes to maximizing your, your training and training with purpose. Um, I think it was Frank Shamrock who actually had a, a really great uh, concept that he called plus minus equals. And basically what, what he means by this is you want to find, when you're training, you want to train with three different types of partners. You want to train with the people who are better than you, which is the plus. You want to train with people who are worse than you, which is the minus. And you want to train with people who are roughly on your level, which are the the equals. And, And the reason why it's important to train with all three types of people is because you're going to get different things out of every experience, right? You don't all, always want to be training with the guy who you can beat or training with the guy who beats you or training with the guy who gives you a competitive role every single time. There, there's variance in situations and benefits to each different type, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I am training with someone who is better than me, that gives me the opportunity to work my defense and to see things that I normally wouldn't see because I'm training with someone who's more knowledgeable and more experienced than me. And you'll have um, to be more mentally yeah, tight. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's where I get to test my A game, right? That's where I get to trust my, 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 my preferred techniques, my, my primary path to success. That's where I get to test my, you know, to be at my best. But when you're doing that, you know, you don't always get to be super fluid and to, and to use everything you know when you're fighting the best. You have to kind of use your A game where it's important to train with the people who are um, below you is uh, this is important because number one, um, it gives you the opportunity to try new and exotic things that you've never done before. Number two, it forces you to teach them and, and the act of teaching them actually makes you better at what it is you're teaching. Absolutely. Like if you have to sit, I think it was Einstein who said that if you can't explain something in simple terms, you don't truly understand it. Um, a lot of the high level guys listening to this will probably agree that when you have to explain something, it reinforces and improves your understanding of the concept as well. And additionally, as we mentioned earlier, if you can improve the level of the junior people in your school so that they can give you a competitive role, then that forces you to step up your game as well. So it is super critical as a more senior person to train with the more junior people. Mm-hmm. I think the clubs that kind of segment the the juniors from the seniors are really doing themselves a big disservice. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing is you want to train with people who are basically equal to you. You know, you want to train with a guy who's like roughly same experience level, same body type, who gives you that hard role every time and it goes 50-50 either way. That's important because that's the true test of where you're at relative to your level. And and all three of these types of partners give you different perspectives. And it's very important to get that full breadth of experience when training. Uh, You don't want to just go to the same partner every time because you're comfortable with that guy. You want to train with a diverse set of people and get that diverse set of experience. Yeah. And on the flip side, flip side, Steve, just uh, hammering that home is that every, every, you can learn something from everyone, right? Mm -hmm. So just because someone is a lower rank or a white belt, don't get the idea that, Hey, I'm not going to learn anything with rolling with this white belt right now. You're always going to learn something. You're going to be able to try your best techniques and you're going to be able to explain things to them when normally maybe maybe you're not used to explaining how to do a basic shrimp or yeah, you know yeah, something yeah. and it really makes you think about things again um through through that beginner's mind so that is something definitely the to to have that not only just not to have uh, so much ego that you won't roll with the lower rank, but that you're willing to help everyone. It's a healthier atmosphere. Everyone gets better from it. Yeah, it's like we mentioned on a, pr- a prior episode. You know, I I might know more than you or you might know more than me. But the one thing that's certain is the two of us together know more than either of us individually. So you can always get something out of the guy who's more junior than you. 
keep that beginner's mind and don't let your ego prevent you from what could wind up actually being a very wonderful learning opportunity. Awesome. So it's letter time. Questions. Okay. So we've got some questions that are actually kind of topical to this episode. Um, First one is, is it better to train harder or smarter? Um, This is a a kind of a tricky question to answer, but I I guess if there's one thing that we kind of learned from today, it's that smarter is generally going to be harder. Um, But that said, that doesn't mean that you need, you should be lazy, right? Like it's kind of a it doesn't necessarily need to be an either or. Um, the way I think about it is you want to, you always want to be smarter in everything you want to do. You want maximum efficiency. Uh, we talked about this again in a prior episode where, hey, if you're working eight hours a day, if you work three times harder than, and you work a full 24 hours a day, even if that is actually somehow physically possible for you to do, you're only going to be three times better than ever, than the average person. There are people out there who are 10 or 100 times better than the average person. They didn't get there by working 800 hours in a day. <laughs> That's not possible. Mm-hmm. They found ways to improve their learning skill. Um, so smarter always trumps harder. But that said, if you're doing everything smart, then working hard is the thing that's going to really magnify those mm-hmm. gains. So I would say focus on smart over hard, especially if your lifestyle doesn't permit you to be just like, you know, spending all of your time in the gym. All of us have different life priorities, but make the most out of the time you do have and put in the work um, given your goal, you know, relative to your goals in jujitsu. Yeah. There's a saying, I can't remember what it is, but uh, what is it? A, t- a talent, talent, uh, if I can't remember what it is. Talent is nothing if, if it doesn't work hard or something like that. It, yeah. Essentially, you, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you're not going to be a hard worker with that talent, then someone who works hard without any talent at all is going to go places that you can't. So a work, you know, of course we want to, we want to maximize our learning ability and, and work smarter, not harder. That's kind of the mantra in the kitchen as well. But, just remember that hard work has its own place too. So the key is having a, a, a balance of both, right? Having that efficiency that you can maximize your training, but also having the work ethic behind it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I want to be putting in eight hours a day on the mats every day. Mm-hmm. And that's a rule that I set for myself. Yeah. And if I don't do that, that I'm I'm falling behind. We talked uh, actually yet, uh, in the last episode about stress and recovery and how you've got to know where the, the limit right. is before you actually start losing your gains. That's right. And me now being almost, I'll be 31 this month, um, I've realized that, hey, like I don't have the uh, the the body of a 20 year old anymore where I'm constantly recovering super fast. Now I'm a little bit more, I got to be a little bit more economic with my, with my training output because I, I still do train about, uh, you know, anywhere between four and six hours a day, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm definitely not putting my, my hundred percent output that entire time I'm teaching. Uh, I'm maybe I go for a jog, maybe I stretch. I try and find other ways because there, there are going to be days where, you know, you, you, you got to rest today because tomorrow I know I'm putting in a hard set of, you know, I'm going to be putting in like six hours tomorrow. So today I'm going to go a little bit lighter. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying, Hey, you know what? I'm listening to my body today. I'm here for technique. Uh, I'm not going to roll today. I need, I need to recover. Tomorrow's a hard day or whatever, or I just, you know, I need to let my body rest and, and listening to your body is a really important skill. And when we're new, uh, it's very difficult to identify this, especially if you're, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are serious about jujitsu who feel guilt when they can't be training every day. Uh, they get down on themselves. They beat themselves up because they see other people working so much harder and they say, you know, that guy's so lucky. He, get, he does jujitsu for a living and he's working harder than me. I'm never going to beat that guy. 
we already talked about comparing yourself to other people. Mm -hmm. And just remember that it's a balance of both. As long as you are, you have good work ethic and you put in, you know, consistent hours, not, not the most hours, but consistent hours and you have strong learning mental models. Uh, that's, that's your formula for success. And yeah. just realize that you're, you know, you're not measuring yourself against other people. You're measuring yourself against the person you were yesterday, as we've talked about before. Yeah. The, the way I've always thought of working hard versus working smart, it, this is something that comes up a lot in my, my day job. Um, I've always thought of it like this working hard, like basically counting hours that think of that as addition. Working smart, think of that as multiplication. You get bigger gains out of working smart than you do out of working hard because you're multiplying your gains. You're not just adding in hours. But that said, doesn't matter how big your multiplier is. If your effort is zero, anything times zero is still zero, right? right. So yeah, you want to focus on working smart because that's where you multiply your gains, but you need to actually still put in the hard work or else you have nothing to multiply. That's right. And and in the end, it's the result that really matters. Uh, Just one more real quick example. When I was learning, learning how to navigate myself as a chef in the kitchen, I would see guys running around, running around like, man, this guy's constantly working he's getting a lot of stuff done and then you know busy work (laughs) and then someone would come up to me and be like yo that guy's such an ass like he gets nothing done i'm like what do you mean he's running around he's getting stuff done and like they're like yeah he's gone to the fridge five times in the last half hour (laughs) yeah the key is to think about all the things you need go to the fridge once with a cart come out once and totally limit the amount of time to and from the fridge so you know efficiency generally beats hard work but you need to, if you're going to reach the highest level in anything, especially in jujitsu, you do have to have a hard, strong work ethic. So yeah. just keep that in mind. It is a balance between both. But just like in when we're sparring and, and doing jujitsu, efficiency is king. Yeah, absolutely. So an- another question, um, you know, what are our thoughts on the importance of fundamentals in jujitsu? Now, this is a kind of a tricky question to answer because it depends. Define fundamentals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if by fundamentals you mean arm bars, closed guard, triangles. Yeah. I mean, they're fine. You know, you, they're not necessary. You can actually get pretty far in jiu-jitsu if you don't have a triangle or an arm bar. Yeah. I, pre- um, I prefer worm guard. It's <laughs> yeah. fundamental. Yeah. So if, if by fundamentals, you mean like old school, 100-year-old Gracie techniques that everyone learns on day one, I mean, they're important. But if by fundamentals, you mean what we talked about in this episode, basically understanding core principles, those are absolutely critical. They're the most important thing. You are better off understanding the fundamentals and nothing else versus memorizing 500 different specific techniques. Um, that, that said, again, it comes down to what you mean by fundamentals. But I, I would actually argue that the traditional like course material for jujitsu where on day one, they teach you the quote unquote fundamental moves like the arm bar and yeah. the collar choke. This is not a productive way to teach new people. I, I would rather you spend the first week or so at, at least just talking about ideas and maybe having some just some body movement to kind of get familiar with how those ideas work in practice. Absolutely. Like our fundamentals class. Uh, and, I, and I've changed my teaching style a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. I started teaching as a, a senior blue belt. Then I met Rob as a more of a senior purple belt and like totally my 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 teaching changed from technique based to concept based. So now in a fundamentals class, you know, and usually instead of doing like arm bars, omoplatas, kimuras, those those are the three main moves you learn kind of from guard. Uh, uh, 
it, when you when you first learn jujitsu, mm-hmm. we talk we do more movement drills because those are super important. Jujitsu is a game of movement, but also the concepts talking about things like posture, structure, base, levers. How can we better manipulate levers? How can we manage guard? Right. One of the one of the main things you're going to come across in a fundamentals class. One of the main problems when you're a beginner is maintaining your guard. Mm-hmm. Right. Someone passes your guard, well, you're in trouble now. So learning how to manage distance replace your frames and uh and and understand the phases of guard that's that's what i think of when i think of fundamentals now yeah i don't think about arm bars i don't think about chokes or anything like that all those moves <laughs> when applied properly are none of them are simple yeah they're th- that's literally the same amount of of instruction as uh, a heel hook would take yeah okay it's just a matter of of can you explain a, what a lever is to a beginner how we want to control levers, how we want to break alignment, how we want to manage distance and frames. Those are fundamentals. Yeah, it is actually extremely weird when you think about it that we consider like arm bars and triangles to be fundamental yeah. because they're incredibly complicated. <laughs> incredible. It's a triangle. I mean, it's I, so complicated. I didn't, I didn't like even now, of course, I'd be a fool to say that I've, I know all the things I know about triangles. Like I'm a master of triangles. You know, I, I, I hate the word master. Like I'm, mm-hmm. people are like, oh, oh, he, some people have told me I'm a master leg locker and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, like there's guys in the world that will just cream me. Yeah. And know? even they wouldn't say they're masters, right? Exactly. Like, like to, to say that you're a master of something like I, I that's I, not beginner's mind. <laughs> it's not beginner's mind. Like even when people call me professor, I literally just do it, uh, honestly as a, as a business move because yeah. people, you know, it's, it's a common term used in our industry now. Um, it's, it's, to say that you're a master of something means I've learned all there is to learn. Mm-hmm. So uh, it also I, implies a degree of authority and rank that I think is the opposite of humility, right? It, you said it perfectly. And, and, and like, like I was saying about triangles, it's like, well, at Brown Belt, I was still learning huge details in triangles that I was missing throughout the, the other lower ranks. So it's like, you'll never stop learning those details on something as complicated as a triangle. The last thing you should be learning on your first day is a triangle. Now, yeah. now that being said, it's, it is fine to be introduced to a triangle and to put that yeah. seed in your head that, hey, this is what is possible, but make sure that it's not a, a technique, you know, leg goes here, yeah, you yeah, grab yeah. here and, and this, talk about why it works, talk about how to break your opponent's alignment so that you have control rather than a submission, mm-hmm. and also talk about things that can go wrong, uh, as opposed to, here's how we're going to do the triangle and it's always like this, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. So just to kind of recap what we've talked about today on the topic of rapid learning, the different mental models that we've talked about, uh, we've talked about the concept of preferring principles over specific techniques, or in the case of in jujitsu, what that often means is uh, preferring an understanding of alignment over hyper-focus on a specific position. We talked about how naming concepts can make them easier to learn and remember later. And to relay the method. And to the relay to, up to your team. We talked about um, growth from discomfort, how, um, you know, mo- actually Josh Waitzkin has a great quote about this where he says that growth comes past the point of resistance. Basically how in order to grow, you need to go outside of your comfort zone. Um, we talked about investing in loss, which is kind of a variant of that, meaning that you in order to be good at something, you have to be willing to lose at it before you start to win. And you need to view that as an investment, not as something being taken away from you. We talked about the scientific method, uh, basically how rather than focusing on trying to, uh, hoping that you understand everything perfectly, actively looking for things that you don't understand. And, and a big part of that is being willing to challenge yourself and, and your gym and your instructor and your partners. 
we talked about again about beginner's mind, uh, the the humility mindset of taking every situation as if you were a beginner and putting your ego in the on the back burner and being willing to learn even from the most junior of people. We talked about training with purpose, uh, setting training goals, both for the long term and the short term, and then reflecting on those goals after the session. And we talked about plus minus equals. So seeking out and training with a diverse set of training partners because you get different benefits from different levels of experience. Yeah. Um, anything else, Matt, that you wanted to talk about before we tie this up? No, it's a great chat. And uh, again, thank you guys for all the support. Keep the questions coming. Uh, it's a pleasure for us. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. It's great. See you next time, guys. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time.